Welcome to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. This week, a startling increase in hate crimes nationwide. Minorities, religious groups, and others are all being targeted. The staffing shortage for Seattle police is just getting worse at a time when crime rates are going up. Made for TV, the House Select Committee investigating the attack on the U.S. Capitol will hold hearings in primetime this summer. And how do you pay for the war in Ukraine? But first, this week, the United States Supreme Court took up the case of Bremerton's praying football coach. First, a little background. For eight years, Joseph Kennedy was an assistant coach at Bremerton High School. In that time, he routinely offered Christian prayer on the field after games and in locker rooms. In 2015, the district told Kennedy to stop leading prayer if it interfered with his duties or involved students. And that's where things get complicated. Coach Kennedy continued even inviting press to the event. When the season was over, his contract was not renewed. Kennedy contends he was fired for expressing his faith. The district says he was fired for disobeying an order and that his prayers amounted to an endorsement of Christianity. Joining us now is Robert Barnes, longtime Supreme Court reporter for The Washington Post, as this case is now before the justices. And I guess the first question is, what exactly is the question? What is it that the justices are being asked to decide? Well, the justices are are looking at how a sort of someone who is a public employee, what right uh, does he or she have to live out their religious life quietly in a way that doesn't interfere with their jobs, but still um, allows them to have their own religious beliefs. It's sort of the interplay in the Constitution between One part of the First Amendment, which says that uh, government cannot endorse uh, any religion, and the other part, which says government cannot prohibit the free exercise of any religion or free speech. And so it's a sticky area always, and, and this case really shows that. Why did the Supreme Court justices decide to take it up now? Because it previously went to the Supreme Court and the justices said, no, we don't want to hear it. Well, they thought that the case was still at uh, too preliminary a state uh, at that point. And, but four justices were sympathetic um, to Coach Kennedy. They seemed to be sort of nudging the appeals court to rule a different way when it got back to them. But the appeals court did not do that. The appeals court was uh, very closely divided, but it ruled for the school district. Uh, and so when uh, the Coach Kennedy went back to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court was ready to take it on at that time. So is the outcome here a foregone conclusion with that 6-3 to three conservative supermajority on the bench? Well, I think that the court was sympathetic to Coach Kennedy. Uh, I think that you saw that from a lot of the justices, particularly the conservative justices. But I also think that there may have been a bit of a surprise for the justices about the actual facts of this case, because it's not really as clearly as Coach Kennedy had presented it. You know, he talks about the uh, ability to say a silent prayer by himself at the uh, 50-yard line after a game when other things were going on. But as uh, you and probably the folks uh, in your area know, it wasn't really that. It was that for a long time, and then it grew into something else with uh, politicians on the field with him and him leading audible prayers with the two teams that had just played holding their helmets in the air. 
And so a couple of times you try, you heard some of the justices say, okay, if we could put all of that aside, if we could just focus on the question of whether a public employee can give a sort of silent prayer while on duty, what would the answer to that be? And so what were some of those questions that came from the justices? Well, there were uh, questions, for instance, about would he have been fired if it was some other sort of political statement? For instance, what if he had waved a Ukrainian flag uh, at midfield in a show of support uh, for Ukrainians? Or uh, Justice Clarence Thomas asked, what if he had taken a knee to protest racial injustice during the national anthem instead of taking a knee to offer a prayer? Uh, the school board's attorney said that there would still be something that the school district could do about that because the school district doesn't want its events, like a football game, turned into a forum for an individual speech. On the other hand, some justices uh, asked about coercion and whether or not any kind of display, religious display by a coach, whether or not he was asking players to join in, could be seen as a form of coercion because the coach or a math teacher or anyone else in authority uh, doesn't have to actually ask students uh, to get involved if the student thinks that, you know, either their grade or their playing time or a recommendation uh, depends on it. Well, and that's certainly, I think, at issue here because there is a big power imbalance between the coach and the players. And the coach, because he's working for a public school district, is an agent of the state. Yeah, that's right. And the school district says, you know, for years, uh, he he did uh, just sort of pray by himself, uh, take a knee. No one really noticed. The school district itself didn't really notice. I don't think that he was doing that. But it was only after it became a more organized event that the school district got worried. And in fact, they said that the coach of an opposing team came up to them and said that they had been invited to take part in this and that he thought it was really cool that the school district was allowing this kind of religious display. And the uh, school district said, well, you know, that's when we realized that we had a problem. This sounds a little bit like showboating, almost that he was looking for this fight because he's inviting the press, he's inviting the other team. Is, is that a fair assessment? Well, there was some concerns about that. And certainly the school district has made the claim that his lawyers they say impeded negotiations on this, that his lawyers say that the school district refused to meet in person with them. You know, who knows which of those sides uh, is most accurate on that. But I think certainly the idea that it uh, became a spectacle is what, you know, has sort of brought all of this to a head. And even uh, Kennedy's lawyers admit that it was wrong for him to have done some of the things that he did. But they said, all of that is not the real reason that the school district fired him and that all he wants is this ability to say a prayer of gratitude after the game. Is that the only relief he's seeking or does he want his job back? He wants his job back and he has moved, uh, he and his wife have moved to Pensacola, Florida, 
The uh, school district says that shows that he's not really serious about this. But Coach Kennedy told me and he uh, filed an affidavit with the court uh, saying that if he got his job back, he would move. He would be on the first plane uh, back to Bremerton to resume his duties. So, again, we're talking about a, a public display of religion. And, and these cases have been all over in the last 50 years. You know, we saw them with Roy Moore in the in the Ten Commandments down in Alabama. But when you're dealing with students, when you're dealing with kids, it's it's a bit different. And one of the arguments is that this is just another way of separating and dividing people, thinking of that kid who sits out the prayer because he's Jewish or Muslim. It's another way of making people different and ultimately labeling them as other, all at a particularly difficult time in life, adolescence. How much of that was part of the argument in court? Yeah, there was uh, there was some of that. And there was there is a, um, a brief filed by some folks in Bremerton, the parent of uh, a student who happens to be a friend of Coach Kennedy's, who filed a brief in behalf, on behalf of the school district, uh, some religious leaders in Bremerton saying, you know, that it's really impossible in that setting to sort of separate out the coercion aspect. Uh, and that even though some of these religious leaders are Christian, said, you know, that's not our view of Christianity, that it really has to be uh, free will, and that they want to respect the rights of others. Now, there is no evidence that Coach Kennedy actively asked students or recruited uh, students to join him in prayer, and there's no real evidence that uh, has been presented that any student suffered, any player suffered, because he didn't go along with it. I mean, you're right. All of those elements go into that and have something to do with what makes this such a sticky situation. This also seems to be the latest case in the culture wars, because it seems like the courts, and in particular the Supreme Court, seem more likely to jump into these very, as you say, sticky cases that deal with religion or free speech or abortion or whatever it happens to be, now that you've got that conservative majority. Well, I think that this court now has justices who believe that religious rights have not gotten their due under previous courts. Uh, they are much more protective of religious rights. Uh, this was the fourth case this term that the court took up that had some aspect of religious rights in it. And so you're right, this court is much more interested in that issue and much more interested in taking up these cases. Does freedom of religion mean freedom from religion? Yes, it does mean that. But there was not as much talk about that. The only uh, time I think it came up is the school district was saying, you know, the problem with uh, allowing some displays of religion is that they got a request from Satanists who said that they wanted uh, access to the field in response to Coach Kennedy taking a knee. Uh, and so you can sort of see where these things go. So when are we expecting a ruling? Well, I wish I could tell you, but I can't. Uh, the Supreme Court never really tells us uh, in advance when they're going to rule on something. But this is, you know, one of the last cases that the court has heard oral arguments in. They won't hear any more oral arguments. And so now they're in the position of 
simply writing uh, decisions for all the cases that they've heard since October. So I would not expect a decision in this case to come before the end of the court's term, which is usually uh, in late June or early July. All right, Robert Barnes, Supreme Court reporter for The Washington Post. Thank you so much for your time and insight. Thanks for having me. We have to take a quick break, but when we come back, hatred towards minorities is on the rise. We'll get you the details when the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. Incidents of anti-Semitism have been on the rise over the last few years, but the Jewish community is by no means the only minority group that has suffered. Joining me now is Stephen Paolini, the Pacific Northwest Regional Director for the Anti-Defamation League, which reports a startling increase in hate crimes. Every year, uh, the ADL nationally uh, reports on our anti-Semitism audit. We take all of the hate and bias incidents that have been reported to the ADL, either directly by constituents, primarily through our website or by folks reaching out to our office, or in coordination with other community organizations, law enforcement, or press. And we tag the incidents that are related to anti-Semitism and then review them for credibility And that comprises our audit. We've been doing that since 1979. So we're on our 42nd audit. And this year in 2021, so this is a retrospective of last year, we saw the highest number of anti-Semitic incidents since we've been doing this audit. So this is the highest number in 42 years. Now, the highest number nationwide or here in the Pacific Northwest? Highest number nationwide. And what about here in the Pacific Northwest? Here in the the Pacific Northwest, we're at the second highest number. We're just a few cases fewer than we had last year in 2020. Um, But it tracks very closely. So we're, you know, kind of neck and neck. These last two years, especially during COVID, have been really troubling in the overall amount of anti-Semitism incidents that we've been seeing. Why do you think that is? Why is there a a correlation between COVID and and the rise in these hate-fueled incidents? I'm not sure that that is the correlation. There is one piece of this that's a very strong connection, which is, you know, we have seen a a staggering rise in the amount of anti-Semitism related to the pandemic itself. So I'll give an example, right? There is um, an extremist organization called the Goyim Defense League, which is a, a white supremacist propaganda organization that is deeply um, embedded in anti-Semitism in particular. And they have been doing distributions in multiple states in the Pacific Northwest. We've seen, you know, in Seattle, in Portland, in Vancouver, um, in Kamas, Washington, um, instance of them distributing flyers with, you know, this, this, really awful phrase, um, you know, attributing the COVID-19 pandemic to the Jewish community. And so there is a rise in particular of those kinds of incidents, which blame or demonize the the Jewish community um, because of the pandemic and and attribute it to them. Um, But as an overall trend, we're not necessarily saying, you know, the numbers that we're seeing the last two years are because of the pandemic. These are actually an extension of a trend we've seen over the last really 10 years especially since 2016. Um, But every single year, we've seen an increase in the amount of anti-Semitic incidents leading up to these really high numbers in 2020 and 2021. To what do you attribute this trend over the last few years? Yeah, I mean, there has been overall uh, more uh, organized extremism in general 
and they're responsible for quite a few of these incidents. There's just been a proliferation of hate in general as well. Um, and, you know, we as a society have become a place that's that's more polarized and, and where marginalized communities can become the object of hate and ire uh, by various people and groups. And it's not all extremism. That's, you know, that there's certainly a big part of it, but there are just folks that are completely unaffiliated with any group or organization that are really contributing to the kinds of harassment, vandalism, and violence assault, you know, on members of the Jewish community. So what can you do? How do, how do you address this problem? Yeah, I mean, so I'll give a, a couple of different examples here. Um, you know, our region, the Pacific Northwest, we cover Washington, um, Oregon, Alaska, Idaho, and Montana. So, you know, that's a pretty big geographic area. For folks that are listening to this call right now and you're concerned about these trends and you want to stand up and you want to say this is not a place, you know, this my community is not a place for hate, then the most important thing you can do is you can go to our website at ADL.org and you can report these incidents to help make sure that the next audit is even more encompassing of the data and of the facts on the ground um, than, than this year's. And you can really help to make sure we're able to call it out when it happens. That's a really important piece of this. You know, not every incident is, are we going to have a huge resolution, but every single incident we hope at the ADL that we can help be a part of the community leading up and standing up and saying, this is not something we're going to tolerate in our community. And it's not just for the Jewish community. We, we want to do this. I think it's really important for every single community. The ADL has a long history of standing up for the Jewish community, but it's not just uh, here for that as well. But then there's also a public policy element to this. Absolutely. And I want to point to some really fantastic work that the Oregon State Legislature and the Oregon Department of Justice, which is their attorney general's office, has been doing over the last several years. Uh, They created a standalone unit called the Oregon Civil Rights Unit which staffs a full 24-7 hotline for victims of hate and bias in their community. And it's an organization uh, that I'm able to work with when I get incident reports to to the ADL. Um, And they have tangible, real resources for victims to receive the support they need. An example of that, I had a business owner in downtown Portland who had some horrific anti-Semitic graffiti sprawled on, you know, a window. And you know, by working with their, you know, civil rights unit, we could potentially get that person up to $2,000 to get a security camera installed, to fix the window, to take whatever measures they need to take to do to both feel financially whole and to, to potentially create security measures to make sure that they're, you know, able to prevent acts of hate like that occurring again. The number one reason folks don't report is they don't feel there's anything that's going to come from it. And we want to push back on that. And we want to say, look, your reporting is so important. When you report it to us, that helps us track it, helps us shine a light on it, helps us strategize for how to fight back. And in Oregon, they're really sending a strong message. They're saying, if you report, we can really help you, whether it's find housing, find food support, find monetary support, creating security measures with you. Um, that piece of the puzzle is super important. And it's something that I think if that were across the whole region would really make a dent in this trend. You focus a lot on the anti-Semitic hate crimes, but you mentioned there there's far more than that. And then what are some of the other groups that you've seen targeted? Yeah, I mean, the amount of hate and bias, particularly towards the Asian American community during this pandemic, you know, that has been 
really staggering as well. The partnership that we've hoped to have here at the ADL and the Pacific Northwest in supporting the Asian American community as we've seen that hate occur. You know, we talked about earlier about connection to the pandemic. This is a very strong connection to the pandemic. The whole concept around, again, blaming blaming the Asian American community for the pandemic um, has been really visceral. And it's something we've been tracking and seeing. Violence towards the Asian American community has been really awful. I would say broader going back to, you know, 2016 and before, but the amount of anti-immigrant hate in general has been on the rise as well. And, you know, we have many conflicts overseas that are happening and refugees coming to Washington state has done in particular a great job of welcoming refugees from quite a few communities, but they are vulnerable and, and in many cases marginalized because they don't have that, those access to the community resources and support that they need. And so I've gotten numerous cases coming into the ADL about folks, you know, Latin American community and other immigrant communities who are facing discrimination bias and just need help trying to make sense of it. Finally, if someone wants to do something, what can they do? Number one, most important thing, if you're listening, is to go to the website, ADL.org. Right there in the top banner is going to be a button that says report an incident. You know, at the ADL, we have a phrase in ADM, which is that sunlight is the best disinfectant. If we don't know that acts of hate and bias are happening, there's nothing we can do about them. But when you report it, even if it's not something you personally experienced, it gives us the ability to track it, to put out, you know, the audit that we're talking about right now, the reason we're able to have a conversation, you and I, about the kinds of, you know, hate and bias that we're seeing in our community is because people took the time to go to that website and report an incident. That is really, really meaningful. It helps legislators and lawmakers determine policy. It helps us determine how to support people. I've had folks report secondhand, and then I can go out and reach out to someone and provide support to them. And it can make a huge difference. And the second thing is, I just want to encourage everyone as well, calling out acts of hate and bias that impacts the Jewish community, acts of anti-Semitism is so important. And even though I'm not Jewish, right, I'm out here and advocating for folks that are. And it, and the more we can do that for one another and stand up, even when it's not our particular community that's impacted, the more we're going to send a, a strong signal that hate doesn't have a place in our region and that we're not going to tolerate it, and that we're focused on supporting folks that are impacted. Stephen Paolini with the Anti-Defamation League, thank you so much. We have to take another break, but when we come back, more trouble for the Seattle Police Department as fewer and fewer officers want to work in the Emerald City when the Northwest Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Seattle Police probably not going to reach anywhere near their goal of having 1,400 active officers on the payroll. In fact, the problem is getting worse. They're already down several hundred, and it doesn't look like they're even going to fill some of the open positions this coming year. Joining me now is Matt Markovich, political reporter for Fox 13 News in Seattle. This is something we've covered over and over again, and it seems like it's not getting any better, and, and in fact, it's starting to get even worse. Yeah, the news this week on this, it seems to be, like you said, getting worse every week, and so Interim Police Chief Adrian Diaz told the Seattle City Council Public Safety Committee this week, 43 officers have separated from the department so far this year, and only 13 have been hired. That's right there in the first basically four months of the year, the first third of the year, they've lost 30 officers. Now, they had predicted uh, this PD and by its own accounting, they had anticipated they'll be able to hire 125 new officers this year. Well, on that same day, we talked about, uh, the, you know, they've lost 43. 
they dropped that down from 125 to 98, basically a net loss of 27. Well, here we are, Jeff, four months in the year, we've already lost, or this department has already lost 30 officers. And there's no sun on the horizon that that won't stop. The people are leaving. There's uh, higher incentives, basically by the state, to get add more to pensions for officers who have been there for 25 years. There's a higher incentive them for them to leave, and a lot of the there's a lot more people retiring this year that SPD is talking about. So that goal, that's a lofty goal that you just talked about, 1,400. That's what SPD used to be years and years ago. They're going to be running about a thousand officers uh, by year's end, which is way below the 1,400 goal you just talked about. Yeah, you're close to being down a third of what you. Should should be and, and that's got to affect patrol and and now we hear that the chief is uh, blaming response times on this shortage that's correct so he released some response times and basically said that all the priority response times for 911 calls are slower than ever uh, and priority one response time so priority one he didn't give a specific number for for april but he said that the response times are higher than they want to be now, the target, average target for a priority one call, and these are the ones where there's someone's life could be in danger. They want to hit at least six minutes. I mean, they don't want to be any, they want to be faster than six minutes, but they want to go over six minutes. Well, by the end of last year, just with the staffing problems they had last year, the average time was seven and a half minutes on priority one calls. Priority two calls, which is basically there's a, a property, something in progress or something like that, they're way over a half hour. And priority three calls where you just need an assistance for something, it's well over an hour if they show up on a priority three call. And the chief said that officers are leaving the department for better suited jobs for officers in nearby areas. When they did a survey of the 13 closest police agencies to Seattle, and 11 of them offer educational incentives. Seattle does not. They offer uh, the ability to take a police car home. Seattle does not. So it's things like that. Quality of life, feeling good about the job, feeling respected about the job that the police chief says the other departments are offering their people and it's not happening in Seattle. And it's faster to become a higher tiered officer, let's say in Pasco, Kennewick, you know, and other smaller police agencies. And therefore you can make bigger money faster than you can at Seattle Police Department. So it's just not giving them an incentive bonus to try and hire them here in Seattle, which hasn't happened. There's no, there's a plan, possible plan that the city council committee could be voting on in two weeks, but there's no incentive to join the Seattle police department or retention bonus. Whereas everywhere surrounding SPD that's there, as well as according to the chief, better suited, easier on the lifestyle kind of jobs at other departments that don't have as much violence as they have in Seattle. Well, and, and add to that, you have the, just environment in Seattle, whether it's with the Seattle City Council or the the public, which is obviously very left-leaning relative to the rest of the state, uh, and in the last few years has been very almost hostile to police. That's correct. And the City Council has, I'll call it a litmus test vote coming up regarding how they support the City Council, so uh, how they support SBD. Um, so here's what well, we talked about the, the officers not coming to the department and they've dropped it down to 98. Well, that represents a salary savings between 4.1 and $4.5 million to the city that was going to go to officer pay that they were hoping to have at the 125 limit. Well, now the city council says, hey, especially Teresa Mosqueda, the head of the budget committee, says, hey, 
we could use that salary savings money in other areas in the city, not just for the city of, not, not for SBD. So they're even talking now about taking the money that would have gone to SBD, but because they can't hire officers fast enough, they're going to use that salary savings and put it to other things. And one council member uh, said, well, hey, let's hold on to that money and use it for incentive pay to try and keep officers here. And that's the kind of vote that's going to take place on May 10th at the Public Safety Committee meeting. We're going to vote on that as well as other ideas, like uh, Lisa Herbel has an idea of using some of that money, $625,000, and at least offering a moving allowance for officers who may want to join the department. Not incentive pay, but we'll pay for your moving if you're moving from the other city. So that's where it sits. If the council's you know, starts taking away money that's already been budgeted for SPD. That's another example of why SPD officers say the council doesn't like us or respect us. And all of this with the backdrop of the George Floyd protests that happened a couple of years ago, the issues that Seattle police have had for over a decade with the consent decree with the Justice Department, there just seems like all sorts of disincentives for any new recruit to come to Seattle. That's correct. You kind of want to want to know what uh, Diaz is the chief is actually saying, and yeah, plus I you forgot to mention, we have an interim police chief. And so he's not even for sure going to be the police chief. He's been interim for more than a, well, almost a year and a half now since Carmen Best left. So you have an interim police chief who's there trying to recruit officers to his department. You wonder, what does he say to them? <laughs> What's the appeal to come to the Seattle Police Department? It's a great question. And it just doesn't sound like the city council has changing its tune they have changed their tune a little bit, but not really dramatically to that they want to support the, the police department. They're all about, say, a majority of them are all about alternative forms of policing, which during this committee meeting, Teresa Mosqueda talked about alternative to uh, armed sworn officers showing up for events where you don't need an armed officer. Council member Alex Peterson asked a staff member, do we have alternative policing in place right now? And that staff member said no. Even though they've been talking about it for two years, that alternative policing is not there. So that's what the city council would like to see. A lot of people would like to see. Mayor Harrell wants to see an alternative, but it's not there. So what do we do in the meantime? We send out Seattle police officers to almost every event. And that's just what's happening right now, because that's what we've got. And as a result, the crime rates here and everywhere else tends to go up. Matt Markovich, political reporter for Fox 13 News in Seattle. Thank you so much for your time. As always, Jeff. Still to come, prepare for some good old-fashioned political theater. The House Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection will hold hearings in primetime later this summer. More on that when the Northwest Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. The House Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the nation's capital is going on TV. This June, they'll be holding hearings in primetime. ABC News correspondent Andy Field spoke with our Brian Calvert. Eight. Uh, eight uh, uh, so far scheduled. Some of them are going to be in prime time. Some of them are going to be during the day. I can imagine that the prime time ones will have some uh, star witnesses, including possibly Kevin McCarthy. We're told he is going to get an invite, along with a number of other Republicans whose texts and recordings we have heard subsequent to some leaks out of the committee uh, indicating that some of them may have been uh, uh, coaching the White House on what to do during January 6th. Others uh, were telling their own members, Kevin McCarthy, uh, that they were helping incite this thing and they needed to be uh, quiet about it. And then, of course, Kevin McCarthy came out the other day and said, no, he didn't say that at all. 
But we're living in a world where up is down and black is white when people are confronted with actual evidence. So it'll be interesting to see what or who bothers to show up at these hearings. Yeah, I caught uh, I caught you using the word invite versus subpoena, and it made me think, you know, I, I wonder how many of these people are actually going to show up and share their, their part of the story. Well, we'll see. I, I don't know. I don't even know what the mechanics are of a member of Congress subpoenaing another member of Congress. Um, we're in such uncharted territory with, with all of this here. Certainly a number of people in the Trump administration have just refused to show up, and some of them have been referred to the Justice Department for criminal contempt of Congress. Only Steve Bannon so far has actually been charged with that. The others, the Attorney General has uh, basically sat on these referrals and not done anything with them, much to the uh, unhappiness of a lot of Democrats in Congress. But uh, the bottom line is, is that you know, this is going to be much like the Watergate hearings, except unlike the Watergate hearings, there doesn't seem to be anyone being held to account for these things. I was wondering if you had heard what the House committee is hoping to achieve with all this, whether they, they, they still think they can pursue charges, they still think they can they can do something about this. Well, I think the bottom line is to find out why this unprecedented never happened in our country before attack on the Capitol. Uh, certainly sparked by a lot of the rhetoric of of people making false claims about the election, including the president himself. Uh, Even Republicans have said that, that the president had responsibility for it. At least they did it in real time when it happened. They've since backtracked uh, for fear of invoking the wrath of Donald Trump and perhaps getting primaried out of their jobs. But uh, what they hope to accomplish is basically to tell the Americans what happened that day, what what the evidence is, what uh, people were doing behind the scenes, and let Americans make that decision for themselves. Certainly the Democrats have something to gain from this if they change opinions in the country, because right now uh, the opinion of Democrats uh, in opinion polls, and especially President Biden, is not particularly high, and that worries Democrats going into the next election that they could lose their majorities in the House and Senate. That's ABC's Andy Field talking with Brian Calvert. Still to come, funding the war in Ukraine, the president's request to Congress, when the Northwest Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. Here's Manda Factor. While President Biden is asking Congress to authorize more than $30 billion in additional aid for Ukraine. We need this bill to support Ukraine in this fight for freedom. And our NATO allies, our EU partners, they're going to pay their fair share of the cost as well. But we have to do this. On our Northwest Newsline, ABC's Karen Travers from the White House. How will this money be spent, Karen? So it's $33 billion. That's a lot of money. And the president acknowledged it was a lot of money. Said the cost of this fight is not cheap, but as he put it, basically we're out of money to give Ukraine. $20 billion will go toward military and security assistance. $8.5 billion will be for economic assistance for the Ukrainian government so they can continue to try and provide basic services for their constituents. $3 billion will be for humanitarian assistance. This is a significant amount of money, but the president says it will keep weapons and ammunition flowing without interruption to the Ukrainian military. He says the Ukrainians are paying the price right now with their lives. 
the U.S. needs to contribute so they can keep up that fight. The House yesterday also took action on Ukraine. What's the Lend-Lease program? Mm -hmm. The Lend-Lease program that they approved yesterday, they signed off on the House, overwhelming bipartisan support. The Senate did this last month just by a voice vote. Uh, This is a program that was created during World War II and was seen back then as a game changer, allowing the U.S. to much more quickly resupply allies. So this enhanced authority is specific for Ukraine to help remove obstacles to getting arms and equipment to Ukraine. So it's not creating a new program, but really streamlining and reducing some of the red tape for the president to get things that have already been approved, money, ammunition, things like that, to get it more quickly to Ukraine. I have to say, one of the things the White House keeps emphasizing, you know, Washington works slowly. Billions and trillions of dollars here and there. It takes a long time sometimes to get where it needs to go. That's not the case with this. This money, this actual military hardware, is quickly getting to Ukraine into the hands of the military. And the White House says it is making a significant difference in the battle. Karen, earlier this week, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer tweeted, today would be a great day for President Biden to cancel student debt. What are the chances that's Mm going to happen? Yeah, a little bit of nudging there, very public nudging from the Senate Majority Leader. Uh, The president yesterday was asked about this and asked about Schumer's comments. And he says he is not considering using executive authority to cancel up to $50,000 in student loan debt, as some of the rumblings had been on Capitol Hill, but did say he's discussing some debt reduction. He said there could be additional debt forgiveness, and he'll have an answer on that in the next couple of weeks. Now, remember, that pause on federal student loan repayments, that is again extended until August 31st. This could be something different and a lot bigger. That's ABC's Karen Travers talking with Manda Factor. And that will do it for this episode of the Northwest Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows, such as Northwest News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and Puget Sound Now with Bill Swartz. All are available at nwnewsradio.com or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogelup. Thank you for listening and have a good week.